Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And we are here with episode two of Sawtember. Welcome. So this is your first foray into the Saw franchise. How are you feeling so far? So far, I'm feeling great. <laughs> I watched this movie without any spoilers, and I was hooked the whole time. I think I actually like this movie better than the first one. Really? Well, yeah, because at this point, there's a little bit of backstory, and then there are a couple shocking moments. I felt like I knew more going into this what the movie was going to be, so I felt prepared, and I really enjoyed it, I have to say. Jumping right into the ladies, we have two returners and two new folks. So coming back, we have Amanda Young, played by Shawnee Smith. We talked about her in the last episode. And also Detective Carrie, played by Dina Meyer. Some new additions, we have Addison, who is played by Emmanuel Vosier. She's known for her TV roles in CSI New York and Lost Girl. Horror sequels, such as Mirrors 2, Wishmaster 3, House of the Dead 2, and lots of other TV and movie roles. And then we have Laura, who is played by Beverly Mitchell, known primarily for her TV roles in Seventh Heaven and The Secret Life of the American Teenager. Remember that show? I do remember that show. Going into some pre-plot trivia, this entry in the series, as well as entries three and four, are directed by Darren Lynn Bowsman. So in 2004, Bowsman was pitching an idea for a movie called The Desperate to various American studios who complained that the screenplay was too violent and the plot was too close to Saw. Oh. David A. Armstrong, who worked on Saw, asked Bowsman if he could show the script to Saw producer Greg Hoffman. Hoffman read the script and called interested in producing Desperate, but after showing the script to partners Mark Berg and Oren Coles, the two decided it would be a perfect opportunity to turn The Desperate into Saw 2. That's kind of cool. Bowsman would then go on to direct Saw's 3, 4, and Spiral, which is the ninth film in the series. He's also known for directing horror musicals, <laughs> including Repo, the Genetic Opera, and The Devil's Carnival. The only horror musical I know is Sweeney Todd. Maybe I should explore the genre. I was about to say, I feel like it's a marriage between the two things you love. Maybe we should do like a horror musical theme. Oh, <laughs> So it was written by Bowsman and polished by original screenwriter Lee Wanell. Juan and Winnell had limited involvement because they were busy making one of my first favorite horror movies, 2007's Dead Silence. But they served as executive producers on this and the rest of the films in the series. It's been forever since I've seen that movie. I know I have it on DVD, so I'd like to revisit it. But especially if it's made by Juan and Winnell, it can't be that bad. Mm -hmm. So maybe we'll do that eventually. Yeah. All right, so are you ready to get into it? I am. Let's go. Okay, so in our opening scene, we tune into the movie as a light hums in, of course, some kind of dark, dingy room, and we get a POV shot from someone who is looking around the room frantically trying to get their bearings. We see them glance in a mirror and reveal that this person is missing an eye and that he is wearing like a, I wrote a spiky mask <laughs> yeah, around exactly. his neck. Yeah, like it, the mask, it's around his neck. So you can see the front side of this mask at a right angle with his face and then the back of the mask is the same at the back. And then, of course, Jigsaw comes on TV, Billy the Puppet. He informs this man, Michael, that he's lived his whole life watching other people, informing on them. And now if he doesn't find the key in time to unlock himself from this spiky mask, the spring mechanism will shut like a Venus flytrap and kill him. Jigsaw also tells him that he surgically placed the key behind his mutilated eye that he saw earlier in the scene and shows him an x-ray to prove that it's there. And basically is like, you're going to have to cut into your own face to get the key, unlock yourself and get out. 
Michael cannot get himself to get this key, even with scalpel in hand. He cannot bring himself to slice into his own body. He's only given 60 seconds, by the way. It's just like so quick. The timer goes off and Michael is killed by the mask. Yeah, and there's awesome blood drip. You could tell it's like medieval as fuck. It is so medieval. Yeah, that's perfect. It's so fucking medieval. This is the kind of thing that I'm like, "Mm, I don't know, Jigsaw. I don't think you were very original with this one. Mm -hmm. Like, this has got to be like something that they were doing for hundreds of years. Like, this is right up the medieval torture mechanism alley. Actually, Dead Meat does a very good podcast episode relating jigsaw traps or like overall torture methods used in horror movies and relating it to historical like war crimes. They have some sort of medieval torture device episode and a lot of it are like saw traps that have somehow translated from historical moments of torture into horror movies. So definitely check that out. That just like popped into my mind when you said that. That's amazing. (laughs) So we get a title card, and then we see a detective walking through a precinct to pick up his delinquent son, Daniel. Daniel, you can see, is maybe like 15, 16. He stole some shit. And we get some context that the dad and the mom are divorced. Daniel is sassy. He's just (laughs) like in his I hate you and everybody else era. He's in his reputation era. He's in his reputation (laughs) era. Exactly. So his father, Eric, Eric Matthews, not the older brother in Boy Meets World, but instead a very angry, disgruntled cop, is trying to discipline him. You know, his son's like, why are you such a cop 24-7? He's like, well, I'm just being a father. He's like, trust me, you're better at being a cop. Damn. To which Eric screams at Daniel that if he isn't a good father, he can go back with his mom. So, okay, there is some heightened tension here. And we get a flash forward to a couple days later where Eric is calling his son Daniel to apologize for yelling at him, but Daniel is not picking up the phone. When his phone rings again, he thinks it's his son, but it's his sergeant telling him about a new body, and he meets up with Detective Carey to get the scoop. And this begins, like, the cool-ass transitions. Did you notice this, where he, like, walks out of his motel bedroom and he's walking right in on the scene? Yes. Like, there's a bunch of those, and that kicks this off. I think it's so cool. The body is Michael, and we come to find out this is the man from the opening trap, and it's Eric's informant. So there's an obvious connection between the two of them because Michael is working for Eric and Eric is able to positively identify him through a tattoo and finds the puzzle piece carved out of his arm, which is obviously signifying a connection between him and the jigsaw killer. As Eric and Carrie talk about facts of the case, they seem to kind of fucking hate each other, which I love. There's like a lot of sexual (laughs) tension here. I was like, what's wrong with me? It's giving like Wuthering Heights. Because they fucked. They definitely did. They have a tense history. And of course, it's coming out in their conversation. Carrie essentially wins this argument by showing Eric a note that is scrawled on the ceiling that says, look closer, Detective Matthews. And she's essentially trying to persuade Detective Matthews that, I don't even know, like he seems to be approaching this case very almost apathetically. She's trying to encourage him to give a shit about what's going on. And then with showing him that message, she's trying to eventually show him like, hey, look, your name is written on the ceiling of this case. You better watch yourself. Something is going on here. But he's still really not taking it very seriously. It is also funny because she does it in a flirtatious way where in the next scene, Carrie is studying Michael's Billy tape and Matthews accurately calls Carrie out for playing games with him. He's like, don't pull that on me on a crime scene. <laughs> like you and that guy have a lot in common because literally Carrie in the previous scene had just been like, 
look closer at Detective Matthews, like, reading the clue. And he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? And she, like, points to the ceiling all mm. cute. And it's like, no, how about you just don't bury the lead and tell him <laughs> that he might be in danger? Like, this is not foreplay. What are you doing? She wants it to be. She wants it to be. <laughs> but Matthews is refusing to take the bait. He says his plate is already full with his wife's fucking divorce lawyers and his son's budding criminal career. (laughs) Carrie's like, well, does it make a difference that I'm the one asking to bring you in on this? And I was like, I smell an affair. Mm. And I'm right. They did have an affair. She gets back at him by saying, when did you stop being a cop? Which is a nice little inverse to his son, Daniel, being like, why do you have to be such a cop? And Carrie being like, you're not even acting like a cop. So, like, Mm. what are you, Eric? Yeah, what are you, Eric? Yeah, yeah. And that's a question that we'll see him, I think, grapple with for the rest of the movie. Later, however, as he is tossing and turning in bed, he has a little bit of a dream sequence that leads him to a revelation about the location of a warehouse that Jigsaw might be. He somehow thinks of the recording, some background images, and then settles on what, like, Wilson Garage or something. He notices that the Venus flytrap has an insignia on it for Wilson Metal Co., which has a warehouse in a certain part of town okay, there's a warehouse, that's where the lair has to be. And we seamlessly transition into a SWAT raid. So I was like, is this part of the dream? (laughs) But no, it's not. We are back in reality. He and Detective Carrier are leading a raid on this warehouse with the whole SWAT team. Who is the guy that they're with that's like a good friend of theirs? Riggs. Riggs. Okay. Eric, Terry, and Riggs. He's a guy that we're introduced to in this scene. They seem like the trio, like the three people in charge. And then, of course, there are other officers on the scene. They enter the building and we can see as they are going up the steps that somebody triggers a trap that causes the steps to like collapse or shut. I couldn't really tell what was going on. It's so dark in there. But one of the men's legs get caught in the steps and we can hear that his legs are both broken severely. More mayhem breaks out because an officer is injured. And they find Jigsaw, who is kind of just chilling in a black and red robe. And he is sassy. This is John Kramer. We remember him from the original. He is a sickly old man with cancer, and he is looking not great. He is in a wheelchair on an IV trip. They're telling him to get on his knees, and he's like, I'm afraid I can't do that, because he's in a wheelchair. (laughs) Matthews is getting sassy. Because, as we remember, the message left for him was, look closer, Detective Matthews. So he gets in his face and is like, is this close enough? Mm -hmm. Like, all right, Donnie Wahlberg, back up. You're fine. (laughs) And Jigsaw's like, actually, I need to remain here while you deal with your problem, the one in that room. And that's where we uncover the monitors. And on the monitors is a bunch of surveillance footage of a bunch of people waking up in a room. Daniel is in that room. So Matthews storms back, asking where he is. Jigsaw again with the sass. I would imagine he's cowering in the corner with a sad look on his face. And of course, this is pissing him off. But he essentially reveals that he and the rest of them have two hours before the gas they are breathing in break down his nervous system and that there will be blood, but not to worry, he's in a safe place. Eric tries to call Daniels. I fucking cackled at this, not Jigsaw narrating the answering machine for Daniel. Yes, that motherfucker changed Daniel's voicemail box. (laughs) Daniel can't come to the phone right now (laughs) because he's dead. (laughs) (laughs) Not yet. As we see next to the monitors, there is a clock counting down the two-hour mark, and we switch perspectives to inside the screen. Yes, so now we are seeing things through where Daniel's location is, and we see him waking up, and he is with several other captives. We have Xavier, Jonas, 
Laura, Addison, Abby, and Gus. Seven of them so far. And one woman that still passed out. Everyone is trying to kind of get their bearings. And eventually this eighth captive wakes up, introduces herself as Amanda, and immediately begins freaking out when she realizes where she is. She starts running around the room. She's crying. She's notably much more worked up than anybody else. She starts pulling some bricks from the wall and finds a tape recorder stashed behind them. She plays the tape recorder, and of course, it's Jigsaw giving everybody the 411. He says, in three hours, the doors of the house will open, but you only have two hours to stop the deadly nerve gas. From breaking down their immune system. If there's one thing that this man loves, it's a slow-acting poison in your blood or in your brain. This man is either giving you two hours to figure it out or 60 seconds. Yes. It's all or nothing. (laughs) But, like, this man is always, like, you are breathing in a deadly gas or, like, you have a slow-acting poison in your system because that's what Zepp said, right? Like, that's what Zepp's tape in the original said. I'm like, do you have a doctoral (laughs) in, like, slow-acting poison? Like, how do you know? Yeah. What are the trials on this? Who are you? Who are you? And how do you know how to build all these things? He goes on to say that there are antidotes hidden around the house. One is inside a safe that's in front of them. They all possess the combination. The numbers are in the back of their mind. Once you realize what you all have in common, you'll have a better understanding as to why you're all here. Let the game begin. In the tape, they also have a key. Now, there is a lock on the door. The tape explicitly says, or... There's a note. There's a note, right? Something indicates that the key that they have is not for the lock on the door, But Xavier is like, fuck that. I'm going to try it. So as he's trying to turn the lock on the door, Gus is looking through the peephole, but come to find out it's a trap. Him turning the lock triggers a gunshot located through the peephole. Gus is shot through the eye and is dead. Yeah. So of course, everybody is screaming, freaking out. What a way to start the game. This causes Jonas to pressure Amanda even more to reveal how she knows about the situation they're in. Because the whole time Xavier and Gus want to use this key for the door, Amanda is trying to convince them, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And this is where we get a flashback that reveals that this Amanda is indeed the same Amanda as the one we saw in the first movie, just with a different haircut. (laughs) A bad haircut. Very bad. (laughs) It's a very bad haircut. It's a shag, but it's not not Mm. styled. Mm -mm. And of course, we, the audience, are so confused that this woman who previously survived the reverse bear trap, saw trap, is now back in one of Jigsaw's games. And she is insistent that he's not a serial killer because they all start putting the pieces together because they're like, oh my God, you haven't heard about this. It's on the news. He's a serial killer. And she's like, no, he's not. (laughs) He's testing us and he wants us to survive, but we have to play by the rules. So she's like, I know what we got to do. I've played before. Meanwhile, Matthews and the team watch helplessly as they try to trace the broadcast, but they're waiting on a technical team to arrive. Jigsaw says, I just want to talk to you privately. He really doesn't want to do it. But Carrie's like, listen, you've already lost your son once because of me. I'm not going to let it happen again. Just try to buy us some time and talk to Jigsaw. So Matthews agrees. Back at the house, they search the room and re-listen to the tape for clues. As they're trying to figure out what to do, the door pops open. Xavier goes out into the hallway first, investigating. He's a big, burly guy. He's very intimidating. He finds a bat with some nails nailed into it, standard to any house. (laughs) I just have one laying in my corner. Yeah, same. All the time. It's my decor of choice. 
But they all start looking around for clues as Xavier goes rogue because he's like, I don't need any of you. And is just like going off into the corner. <laughs> this was making me think of the descent when who was it that was just like running through the caves so carelessly? It was stressing me out so much. Oh, it was the one with the short, punky haircut. Yes. The one I liked a lot. Holly. Holly. Oh, <laughs> my God. She's just like running through these caves. Xavier was giving me the same energy here. I was like, Xavier, just <sighs> slow down. But Addison begins coughing up blood, which is giving legitimacy to the nerve gas threat. So they all are increasingly getting more sick as they're breathing in this nerve gas. They end up finding a door that says exit in red paint. And I wrote, X gonna give it to you because Xavier tries breaking open the door (laughs) with limited luck. There's more wall on the other side. So they're gonna have to figure out what they all have in common so they can figure out how to beat this game. Meanwhile, Laura finds a door and it's to the basement, which is my least favorite room in the house, any house. They descend into the basement and they find like a spooky mannequin with Abby's name on it. Abby reveals himself. He's been the quiet guy that hasn't really said much so far. But there's another tape recording that reveals Abby helped kidnap the others and get them into the house. Everybody immediately is very upset with Abby. They're fucking pissed. But the tape says Abby can play a game where he goes into the furnace and gets two antidotes and maybe redeem himself for some of his bad decisions. Obviously, the others are like, yeah, go do that. And Xavier threatens Abby much more, obviously, because Xavier is like huge. He's like, basically, I'll kill you (laughs) if you don't attempt this trap. Abby says he'll do it, but he gets one of the antidotes. So he crawls in, he pulls one of the antidotes down from the top of the furnace. And then when he reaches for the second, it is attached to some kind of string that pulls the furnace door shut and turns it on. And speaking of medieval traps, this is reminding me, have you ever heard of that bull, an iron bull, and you put somebody inside and you light a fire underneath and their screams, you can hear from the outside of the bull, there's like holes by the bull's nose and it sounds like the sound of a bull. No. I don't know why I know about this, Um, but this furnace, speaking of medieval torture, is making me think of that bull. Immediately after Abby gets stuck in this furnace, I will give it to everybody else that they do immediately jump into action. They try to open the door back up, but it's starting to get hot very fast. It's too heavy. They run around to the back and see a glass window. They bust it open and try to get Abby out, but it's too small. And he eventually dies because of his injuries, the smoke inhalation. And everybody is also very sad that both of the antidotes he had pulled down are stuck inside the furnace and they are incinerated. Intercut with this, we have Matthews and Jigsaw sitting down to talk privately per Jigsaw's request. Jigsaw says that he wants to play a game and that the rules are simple. All Matthews has to do is sit there and talk to him and listen to him. And if that happens, they will find his son in a safe and secure state. He goes on to introduce himself as John Kramer. Matthews is like, I thought you preferred Jigsaw. And Jigsaw's like, no, I never claimed it. The piece I took from my subject's skin was just meant to symbolize that the subject was missing something, the survival instinct. So he doesn't necessarily relish in being a serial killer because we'll come to find out he doesn't even consider himself a killer, (laughs) which is complicated in its own degree. But Jigsaw begins taunting Matthews. Oh, come on, you've never gone by the book. What would you have done five years ago? Broken my jaw with a flashlight? So we're beginning to see that perhaps Matthews is a bit of a crooked cop to continue talking about the evolution of the human race, where Jigsaw says that they've created a human race without the will to survive. 
Matthews is really hearing none of it. He's just like, where's my son? But Jigsaw's taunting him and tells him to remember the rules and asks him, what do you think the cure for cancer is, Eric? And Eric's like, I don't know what it is, but I know it's not killing people and torturing them for my sick fucking pleasure. Jigsaw says, I've never murdered anybody. The decisions are up to them. He's like, yeah, well, putting a gun to someone's head and forcing them to pull the trigger is still murder. Since when is force a problem for you? So we're getting some very important context as to the type of lawman that Eric is. And Jigsaw's just being a little bitch. Like he's being very taunting, very sassy, and goes on to say that his son's impending death is causing him to act. Saying, why is it that we're only willing to do that when a life is at stake? The knowledge of death changes everything. If I were to tell you the exact time of your death, it would shatter you completely. I know. Can you imagine what it feels like to have someone sit you down and tell you that you're dying? The gravity of that? The clock is ticking for you. In a split second, your world is cracked open. You see things differently. You smell things differently. You save it everything, be it a glass of water or a walk in the park. But most people have the luxury of not knowing when that clock is going to go off. And the irony of that is that it keeps you from really living your life. It keeps you drinking that glass of water, but never really tasting it. So Eric's like, so you're using cancer as an excuse? And he says, no, the cancer isn't what started me in my work. It was the moment I decided to end my life. And he goes on to recount a suicide attempt where he drove his car off a cliff, but survived. And after he survived, he vowed to make his life meaningful, determined to test the fabric of human nature, saying that those who do not appreciate life do not deserve life. Okay, okay. Jigsaw. All right. <laughs> All right. All righty. Thank you for that speech. <laughs> I mean, it's sound until it's not. Like, people are ungrateful. Everyone can agree to that. But what makes him the judge, jury, and executioner? Exactly. So meanwhile, we're back in the trap house. And (laughs) (laughs) Laura and Daniel have a nice little moment of encouragement together. We can see that Daniel is like a really sweet kid. He's very kind. He's trying to be as patient, but also as observant as he can to get out. Daniel then asks Amanda more questions about her previous survival experience. And he asks why she's back here if she survived. And it turns out that Amanda fell back into a habit of self-harm when she was arrested again for possession. So it seems like she's back in the house because even though she previously gained this newfound appreciation and love of life through her survival, she lost that sense and is now being punished by being put into this house. Jonas then appears and says that he has found another door, but there's no lock on it and it still won't open. So Xavier, the big burly guy, is like, I got this and tries to open it. But as he's pushing on the door, he begins coughing up blood, which is again showing the ticking clock of time. These people are starting to become more and more affected by this poisonous gas. He eventually gets into the room, but that sets off a three-minute timer, and Jonas finds a tape with Xavier's name on it, revealing that Xavier essentially lived a life dealing drugs to people and ruining their lives. So now Xavier can atone for those sins by climbing into a pit of old used syringes with needles to find an antidote. Some during-the-plot trivia... To prepare for the needle room, four people over a period of four days removed the needle tips from syringes and replaced them with fiber optic tips. They did this for like 12 hours a day for four days where they took actual needles out of syringes and replaced them with like a rubber tip. They modified a total of 120,000 fake needles. However, this number was insufficient. (gasps) 
and the pit had to be filled with styrofoam and other materials to make it appear full of needles. The needles that were stuck into the person that goes into the trap were actually blunted syringes stuck into padding under their clothing, and for certain shots, fake limbs were used. Well, Xavier does not want to do this. Certainly not. So he turns around and grabs Amanda, throws her into the pit so that she has to be the one to find this antidote instead. I mean, this is awful. Everyone is standing by, shocked, appalled. Amanda, of course, is stunned at first, but then she gets so fucking pissed and starts shoveling through the needles to find the antidote, which she does. And there's a key with the antidote that when she throws it up to Xavier, he tries to put the key into the lock and stop the timer from ending, but he runs out of time and it's too late. This looks like it's the door to the house. So at this point, it looks like they are permanently trapped in this house. Yeah, and Amanda is stuck with needles, and this is doubly mean-spirited, knowing that Amanda's origin story is that she's a heroin addict, or a recovering heroin addict, so the fact that she's thrown into a pit with a bunch of used needles is so mean-spirited, so painful. Also, Shawnee Smith was pregnant during this (gasps) scene. (laughs) Oh my gosh. She was pregnant during the filming of Saw 2 and told nobody but the costumer and Darren Lynn Bowsman, the director... Because she didn't want anyone to think that she couldn't do her own stuff. (laughs) Wow. Well, she did it. This was such a tough scene. So Xavier storms out while Daniel and the rest of them are trying to comfort Amanda. Back in the lair, the tech team is taking forever. And Carrie says that Eric just needs to stall him a little more and suggests maybe if you start destroying his work, he'll be more likely to talk. So Eric takes a bunch of his schematics and starts breaking them in front of Jigsaw, where Jigsaw rightfully points out that he's going to have a harder time reaching a conviction, destroying all the evidence, (laughs) which is so fucking funny. He goes on to say, we all know what kind of person you are, the kind of person that guns down an unarmed suspect, the kind of person that plants evidence in order to obtain a conviction, the sort of person whose wife leaves him and son hates him. So he is getting under the skin Matthews is screaming at him, but doesn't escalate it. But then Jigsaw says, there's something I haven't told you, Eric, but I could just show you. Maybe the people listening on the walkie-talkie in the other room could find it for him. And his instructions leads him to a drawer that they somehow haven't searched up until this point. I was so upset about that. Like, <laughs> yeah. like they're sitting there watching these monitors and they're not doing anything else. So there's drawers that haven't been opened. And in one of the drawers, there is a envelope filled with pictures of people that Matthew was the arresting officer on. And he planted evidence on all of them. So they were wrongfully convicted. Not that they were without crime, but they did not do the thing that Matthews arrested them for. And Daniel is in a house with all of them. So basically, Jigsaw is saying when the people in the house find out their commonality, which is that they were all wrongfully arrested at the hands of Detective Matthews, and when they find out that his son is in the house with them, it's not going to go over well. And we can start to see that at this point as well. Like people like Xavier, who has shown a lot of aggression, and people like Addison, who has also shown a lot of anger and frustration. Even Laura, who is probably the most peaceful one in the house, aside from Jonas, I would say. But these people still have past that they're not proud of. They carry some baggage from these experiences of being wrongfully arrested. So it's not looking good. 
So back at the house, Xavier realizes that Jigsaw was being literal when he said in that first recording that the numbers to the safe were in the backs of everyone's minds. And he finds the number two on the back of Gus's corpse, the first person to die in the house. Jonas comes in the room shortly after and is standing by and starts to try to convince Xavier to make peace with everybody. He's so damn aggressive. He doesn't say that. I say that. He is damn aggressive. But Xavier pulls a knife and a fight breaks out with Jonas. And unfortunately, Jonas loses. He is hit with that nail-covered bat and killed from behind. And Xavier gets the next number to the safe on the back of his neck. I was like, just share what you've learned with the class. Like, you don't need to be killing people to find a number on the back of your neck. Well, I think his whole thing is they haven't succeeded in getting any of these other anecdotes. And Jigsaw said there was only one in the safe. Right. So I think he's like... I'm not going to risk anybody else getting that antidote. I'm going to get that antidote. Elsewhere, Laura is fading fast. She's very much succumbing to the nerve gas. Addison and Amanda are arguing how to proceed when Laura weakly points out that on a picture on the wall, there is an X broken into the glass. X marks the spot to what you all have in common, which was set on the tape. So on the back of the photo on the wall is a photo of Eric and Daniel captioned father and son. So Addison quickly realizes that Eric is the man who put them all away. Amanda concurs. Laura has a seizure and dies, which is like the lamest way to die in a Saw film, but sorry about that. Addison says, I can't trust you guys, turns and takes off. Amanda is also concerned. She takes off and leaves Daniel on his own, but when she does that, she discovers a dead Jonas as Xavier is skulking around the house and checking the backs of the necks of Abby and Laura. So he is getting that combination. So Amanda decides to evade Xavier together, trying to get away from him. Xavier ends up finding the photo of Daniel and Eric on the floor. So he puts together the pieces. I'm like, why not hold on to that photo? Why'd you drop the photo? <laughs> Literally, you could have been fine. But now Xavier pissed. He's enraged. She's calling around for Amanda and Daniel, lying, saying that he's found a door out. But he ends up finding them and chasing them around as Eric helplessly watches through the screens. So he decides it is time to stop doing things by the book and punish John by beating the shit out of him as John continues to taunt him. <laughs> yeah, he's like, look, you can beat me up, but I'm going to antagonize you the whole time. Yeah. Carrie tries to beg Matthews to stop, but it is no use. He breaks one of John's fingers, trying to get him to give up information. And eventually John does give in. Meanwhile, back at the house, Addison finds another room with an antidote inside a glass case. It looks like all she has to do is reach up through one of the armholes, grab the antidote, and bring it back down. But when she reaches up inside to get the antidote, she drops the needle, but realizes she can't get her arm back through. It's kind of like the finger trap. Yeah. Well, it's also like, but the, it's spiky. Yes. <laughs> so imagine the finger trap. So like- that It's like little, a porcupine. Yeah. So it's like, think about those finger traps that you would play with as a kid, where if you were to pull with force, you can't get your fingers out of the trap. But imagine instead of it being made out of, I don't know, canvas or <laughs> like twine or whatever the hell they're made out of, it's made out of spiked glass. So the more that she tries to pull her wrists out of the trap, they are digging into her wrists mm -hmm. and she is bleeding out. But what does she do? She reaches her second hand up in there. <laughs> 
to try to get the antidote. And now both of her hands are stuck inside the glass trap. Meanwhile, there is a tape that she ignores, first of all, because she doesn't have the tape recorder, but there probably were instructions on how to like, yeah, win. But she didn't give herself the chance to. No. And I have to say, like, I have to give her the excuse that she is so close to death right now with all of the gas that she's been inhaling. She is not thinking straight. But Xavier finds her, looks at the number on the back of her neck to get what he needs, and then leaves her in there to die. Trapped. So meanwhile, Detective Matthews takes Jigsaw out of the warehouse after he says, game over, I'll take you to the house. But just him, no one else. So they go down in an elevator, Carrie and Riggs figure out what's up, and they're like, fuck. (laughs) They're going rogue. Meanwhile, the tech team is steady finding a connection as to where this broadcast is coming from. They get a read on the location, and they send a team to that house. Meanwhile, Matthews is beating directions out of a very bloody jigsaw as to where he is taking him. I found this a very nice little thing. Jigsaw tells him it's the last house on the left, which is a West Craven. I did wonder yeah. if that was intentional. Yeah, I imagine it is. Meanwhile, Amanda and Daniel are hiding from Xavier. They have barricaded themselves in the original room with the safe, using the baseball bat as a wedge to try to keep the door closed. They see that Jonas's blood is pooling in a specific direction, giving the ring how yeah. all of like the marbles go into one part of the floor. So Amanda realizes there is a trap door in the floor. So they're able to move the safe together into the floor just as Xavier breaks into the room. But he does see them closing the door and he gives chase underneath of the house. And as this is happening, we see that Jigsaw and Detective Matthews have pulled up outside of the house and Detective Matthews makes his way inside. He's moving through the hallways, trying to clear each room. And we see shortly behind him, it seems like the SWAT team has also arrived based on the coordinates that Carrie got from the videotape tracking. So we see lots of things going on. Amanda and Daniel running away from Xavier as Detective Matthews is in the house and the SWAT team has just arrived. (laughs) So lots of things are going on. It's feeling very Scooby-Doo right now. Like, what the fuck? Oh, I wrote too many cooks in the kitchen. (laughs) There's too many cooks. Something is going to go wrong. Yes, because you see Detective Matthews discovering all of the dead bodies and trying to follow the breadcrumbs to underneath of the house. Xavier chasing Amanda and Daniel. The SWAT team flooding a house that looks very similar. And eventually the SWAT team uncover another room full of monitors and a bunch of DVD players showing that the broadcast that they have been watching was taped and not live. And they are not even in the same house. So the SWAT team is not where Mm-mm. Detective Matthews, Amanda, Daniel, and Xavier are. They are out of the equation. We just are hoping that maybe Detective Matthews will get his shit together and save the day. Amanda and Daniel are still deep in the bowels of the house, and they eventually find themselves in the original saw trap bathroom with the still decomposing bodies of the other two guys, Adam and Dr. Gordon. Is Zepp's body there? Oh, maybe that's Zepp's body. Because I was thinking, like, is that a plot hole that Zepp's body isn't there? Did they move Zepp's body? Because Zepp should be dead on that floor. There are two bodies. I assume the other one was Dr. Gordon. Well, Gordon's body wouldn't be there. Well, I know that he got out of the room. His foot is there. I was never sure if he got out of the house. He got out of the room, so his body at least would not be in that okay, room. Okay, 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 okay. So, so it's, it's Zepp and Adam, yeah. Okay, so they are still in there decomposing, which is like, wow, guys, way to clean up. Yeah. I guess, you know, you use a room once and then you leave it alone forever, mm-hmm. okay? 
And then Xavier shortly joins them in that room. He has caught up to them. And he basically is like, I need to kill you. I want the numbers on the back of your neck. But Amanda is smart and reminds him that if he kills them, there's going to be no one to tell him the number on the back of his neck. So what does Xavier do being the badass he is in a scary, scary way? He just reaches back and slices off a chunk of his neck skin to read his own number and then continues to threaten the others. I was like, imagine you cut through the number. That's what I thought. I was like, an eight is now a zero. Like, could you imagine like the trust in yourself to be able to cut open your neck, first of all, but also like the exact place where that number would be seen in its entirety. Like the trust in that is like fucking ridiculous. Yeah, for real. But as Xavier is about to advance on them to kill them, Daniel grabs the knife that I think Xavier is holding. He grabs it from him somehow. No. Oh, is it on the floor? So what ends up happening is Daniel is doing an atom where he's passed out, quote unquote. And Xavier goes after Amanda. But Daniel grabs the saw from the floor and ends up slitting Xavier's throat. And then Xavier dies. So then it's Daniel and Amanda. So later, we see Eric finally making his way to the bathroom. He discovers Adam's body, he discovers Xavier's body, and he sees a hand coming from the bathtub. He thinks this might be Daniel, so he approaches the tub, but the hand is attached to a pig mask and a robe, who quickly sedates Eric, and he passes out. Just then, the timer back at the original warehouse goes off, where Carrie is still watching through the monitors, and all of a sudden, a trap door opens in the wall right by the desk where Carrie is sitting, and reveals a previously sedated, but now waking up, Daniel, tied up and stowed away right under everybody's noses. He's in a safe. He was in a safe place. (gasps) That bastard so the whole (laughs) time they were trying to find daniel he was right there the whole time because this saw trap that we thought was happening live was really a recording of something that had already happened yes and that was exemplified because carrie was looking on the monitors when the swat team supposedly arrived and said guys i can't see you like Mm -hmm. i have no visual of you and that's when we found out it was a recording exactly Oh my god. And it it is maddening, of course, because the movie does such a good job of having like these flashback montages that replay all the important dialogue that Jigsaw has said. And we are so frustrated because if Eric just stayed and talked to Jigsaw the whole time, like Jigsaw told him to do to follow the rules, that he just would have been there when the timer went off and his son would have been revealed. Right. But of course, that is not what happened. The next scene we see, Eric wakes up on the bathroom floor with the tape recorder next to him. He is chained now by one of his feet to one of the pipes. He presses play, but it's not Jigsaw's voice on the other end. It is the voice of a woman. It is Amanda's voice. She reveals to Eric that basically if he would have followed the rules, he would have lived happily ever after with his son. And of course, we have a series of flashbacks that show Amanda has been working with Jigsaw for quite some time. I have the tape. Okay. And I think that- Okay, give me the tape. The tape is- Hello, Eric. You probably don't remember me, but you changed my life once. You sent me to prison. I was guilty of a lot of things, but not for the drug charge you framed me for. You wouldn't know the things you lose when you're locked away. The second time someone changed my life, I was guilty, but my life was saved that day. I found myself a father, a leader, a teacher. What is the cure for cancer? The cure for death itself. The answer is immortality. By creating a legacy, by living a life worth remembering, you become immortal. So now we find the tables have turned. It is I who will carry on John's work after he dies, and you are my first test subject. Now you are locked away, helpless and alone. 
What we notice about this tape is that it does not give instructions. It does not give clues as to what he has to do in order to survive. The tape ends with, now you are locked away, helpless, and alone, which is giving us a little bit of how Amanda sees the games versus how John sees the games, which will be split wide open in Saw 3. But through this, we do get the montage that Amanda was an accomplice in the Nerve House game. She knew about it the entire time and was helping to make sure that the rules were followed. The pig mask in the bathtub was also Amanda. And as Eric is listening to the end of the tape, Amanda stands at the door, says game over, and closes the door as Eric lays chained to the wall in the dark, calling her a fucking bitch. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The end. (laughs) What were your reactions to hearing Amanda on the tape? I was very excited. Yeah. And I mean, I knew like through our previous conversations that she was going to end up being Jigsaw's accomplice, but I thought that I was going to see that happen in real time. Right. So like, I knew that at some point, you know, some kind of twist was going to be revealed, but I was surprised that the twist had already happened and then was revealed to us through these flashbacks. So I thought that that was cool how even though I knew it was going to happen, I didn't actually anticipate how it was going to happen. And I was still surprised. And also, like, her voice on the tape, that was really cool. It's iconic. Absolutely. And then I loved that this Saw game was a recording. Yeah. Like, I thought that was a really neat twist as well. Like, there were so many twists in this movie. I think out of Saw 1, 2, and 3, I think this is my favorite. Wow. Yeah, and I know we haven't talked about Saw 3 yet. I have seen it at this point, and I'm excited to talk about it. But this one was, like, I just really liked it. I agree with you in the sense where the twists and the breadcrumbs pay off so much better than some of the ones. There are twists in three that you don't see coming. No. Especially like the very last one that involves Amanda. Like there's so many shoes that drop in the third one. Mm -hmm. But I do think that the payoff here is a lot more satisfying than how Saw 3 ends. But going into some post-plot stuff, talking about those breadcrumb clues... Despite popular belief, Daniel was poisoned while it implies that Amanda never was. While Amanda was fine throughout the entire film, Daniel and the rest of the cast gets weaker as shown in the bathroom. When Eric is checking on the first room, the safe is open, suggesting that Amanda used the antidote to save Daniel. It can be assumed that Amanda never needed an antidote because she was never coughing. She was never coughing up blood like the rest of them were. You never see her struggling with that. Mm. Toward the end of the film, while everyone else is coughing and becoming impaired, Amanda never breathes hard or shows any confusion. So what does that mean? That's where I'm confused in the sense where it's like, if you're there and you're breathing it in, it must not be a nerve gas. It must be like a slow acting poison type thing. The recording just said it was a nerve gas, but really maybe everybody was injected with something while they were still sleeping. Also, Tobin Bell, who plays Jigsaw John Kramer, won a Fangoria Chainsaw Award for Best Villain in his portrayal in this film specifically. He did a really good job. He did a really good job. He did a really good job. We know this podcast is for the ladies, but I think Tobin Bell is so cute. Um, (laughs) He's just like a twisted grandpa to me, and I like him a lot, so I'm happy to see him get his flowers. There are parts of him that remind me of Freddy Krueger. Yeah, a little bit, but he's a little less pervy. Yeah, 100%. But you can tell that he, like, revels in his game. Oh, yeah. He's so smart. Or even, like, Hellraiser. Um, yeah. Pinhead, to a little point where he's just witty. Yeah. And, like, his whole thing is, like, degrading you mentally. <laughs> yeah. It's, he no, And, like, this man, you have to appreciate a man who does his research. Yes. He knows all his shit about you. And he's going to use it against you. Mm-hmm. 
I did this in the first one. I think I'm going to continue it with two and three, just a little section on why everybody was tested. Mm. The rationale that Jigsaw gives or that is revealed through the tapes. So Michael, who was the opening kill with the Venus flytrap, he was atomified, essentially. You are an informant. You're wasting your life watching other people. More specifically, he was an informant for Matthews, who Jigsaw was targeting the entire time. Everyone in the nerve gas house was punishment for Matthews being a dirty cop and using Daniel as emotional collateral. I pointed this out in the first movie. Children tend to be used as collateral in this movie a lot. It continues in the third one. Daniel, while he was like a petty thief and a teenager, really didn't do anything to deserve being in there. He was more so there for emotional weight against Detective Matthews. But this was where I was confused, like, what's up with Abby? Because he was an accomplice, but then ended up in the house too. We might learn about it in like a later film. I don't remember if we do. Because something about this movie is it always has like a cold open with a trap. And you're like, okay, this person doesn't matter. It's just a kill. But then like later in the movie, you come to find out that that person is actually significant to the story. And you're just seeing their kill when it happens in real time. But you're not told the significance of it when it is actually happening. So Abby might matter later. I don't remember. And obviously, Detective Matthews was being tested for being a dirty cop and putting Amanda specifically in jail. So going on to some thematic things, <laughs> continuing on a trend that we started way back when of everything is religious. <laughs> this comes from an article, Saw 2, Horror Junkies Guilty Pleasure by Zachary Dorden. So he writes, throughout the franchise, it's no secret that Saw borrows a lot from Christian mythology and Jigsaw clearly has a God complex <laughs> where he perceives himself as having extra privilege and inflated personal abilities. In the second entry, he plays games or tests of trust and patience, much like the biblical story of Job. By putting these people's lives on the line, he believes they will find a new love for their life. This is eerily similar to Job, where God has taken everything away from him in hopes that he will not give up his faith in him. In his own twisted way, Jigsaw recreates the infamous biblical story to horrific proportions. Following suit with Two's use of Christian symbolism, this entry is all about redemption. For Jigsaw, there are many different ways someone can redeem themselves, and they are all showed in the film. Drug dealers, sex workers, and self-harmers are, in Jigsaw's eyes, unworthy of their life because they harm their bodies. The one way they may become worthy and learn from their mistake is putting them through a process where their lives become at stake and the harm caused to their bodies is out of their control. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so interesting. And it makes me think of the question you asked earlier in this podcast, which is what makes Jigsaw think he can make these decisions? And it's like, well, he has a god complex. Yeah. Like I'm thinking of Amanda and then Jeff, who we're going to meet in the third movie. Like a lot of the people Jigsaw tests are obviously traumatized. Yes. I can't say that for all of them because like I'm thinking about like Addison mm -hmm. or Laura even like we don't know enough about them. Exactly. To say where they're at. But a lot of these people Jigsaw takes advantage of are already in a very deep, dark place. And it's interesting that he takes those people and adds even more to their trauma. Oh, and I got shit about that okay. in like okay. a minute. <laughs> so continuing on the religious symbolism, these aren't my own thoughts. They come from a really cool YouTube video, Saw the Complete History of Jigsaw, Horror History by CZ's World. He literally like takes all 10 movies and puts them in chronological order of the actual sequence of events and not Saw's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, because a lot of these things are happening either simultaneously or like before each other. And you come to find out that the events of Saw 1 are like halfway through the timeline what? by the time that the movies are done. I, Shay. <laughs> I never in my life 
have finished whatever, like a theme, a series, like whatever selection of movies we were doing and felt bummed that I wasn't going to continue following the movies through. Well, here's the thing that's cool about it. Saw X, which is coming out, happens in between the events of Saw 1 and 2. So like we can watch that and you can still understand exactly what's going on. But this is a series I was legitimately thinking about this, that the storyline is solid enough where I feel as though we could continue and do all 10 and you wouldn't be sorry that we did. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I don't know if I would be sorry. I mean, maybe next September we revisit September and do four through six. I'm kind of into that idea. I love that idea. Are we going to do a second annual September? I think so. There's enough. We could do it three times. I know. I mean, I love this (laughs) franchise. Like, I would say Scream and Saw are, like, neck and neck in terms of just how much I love experiencing them. I mean, granted, like, there are parts of Saw that are hard to watch, obviously, and it's very different than Scream in terms of tone and personality. But, like, John Kramer and Amanda and some of the accomplices that we find out later are just so fun to watch. And the storyline is so convoluted. Like, are there plot holes? Yes. But at the same time, nothing in this series is unintentional or left to chance. Even as we watch the first three and you're like, well, what about this guy? You find out in Saw 6 or 7 what was up with that guy. Like, everything is connected. This is like Taylor Swift level Easter eggs. No, it literally is. Like, I love this franchise so fucking much. (laughs) And I would do this for the rest of the year if you asked me to. I love it. So going into some more religious symbolism by CZ's World on YouTube, he points out that John wears robes. He talks about redemption (laughs) all the time. He talks about rebirth all the time. He obviously has a God complex. And what is the name of his first victim in the first movie? Adam. Adam! So like, obviously, there's a lot of connections here between John thinking that he is the judge, jury, and executioner. And because he had a near-death experience, or is consistently living in a near-death experience, he can enlighten other people and make their lives more meaningful by threatening to take it away, which is so fucked up. But he can logic his way around it. And it's hard to argue with some of the one-liners this man has. Yeah, he's got one-liners. So I also wanted to talk about the needle pit. First of all, everything is a what? A dick. Everything is a dick. (gasps) Everything is a dick. It's been a while since we've revisited. It has been too long. I apologize, dear listener, (laughs) that we have not reminded you that everything is a dick in quite some time. Everything is a dick. And a needle pit is just a lot of dicks. Oh, my God. Also, just the circumstances around the trap, right? So first of all, the trap wasn't meant for her. It was meant for Xavier. Obviously, Xavier was positioned in a much more physically threatening place where he could literally put anybody in that trap that he wanted to. He chose Amanda. Also relevant that a man made the choice for her. It's re-traumatization because of her past as a person addicted to heroin. So she's being thrown back into a traumatized position I'm sorry. What is the biblical story about a snake pit? It's something about, oh my God, this is an episode of the Veggie Tales that I, I watched when I was young. I failed CCD. I don't know. Oh my God. No, no. It's a needle pit. Everything is a dick. And it could mirror the idea of like the snake pit from that biblical story. I don't know. I'm just kind of thinking I lost my memory, but I'm starting to see parallels. Mm-hmm. See, I wouldn't have caught that at all. But it's also the idea that she is seemingly replacing her addiction to drugs with an addiction to the games, like an addiction to John seeing him as this god figure and her losing control over a game that she helped orchestrate is going to be a big shot to her ego, which informs some of her actions in Saw 3. 
So the last thing I have is on trauma and Amanda not being changed, but traumatized. And this comes from the article Traps and Trauma, The Legacy of Saw 2 by Craig Ranallo. So he goes on to write, the character of Amanda is a convincing actress. After her initial questioning, when it becomes apparent that she has knowledge about their situation, no one in the nerve gas house suspects Amanda of being their captor. She appears just as distraught and devastated as the rest of them to have found herself in this predicament. And in many ways, she is, but we'll get to that momentarily. Meanwhile, the audience, much like the characters, is awash in a mix of pity and sympathy for seeing this character have to endure Jigsaw's cruelty once again. In rooting for her to survive, we don't give as much credence to the film's clues as we should. There's one moment, though, that shows us how much deeper things go with Amanda and with the philosophical underpinnings of the Saw mythology. It's when Amanda first wakes and her hands fly to her head in a panic, checking to make sure she is not once again trapped in the dismal dungeon wearing the reverse bear trap. This gesture is so telling of Amanda's character because in this moment, she is her real self, her raw, emotionally scarred self. As we know, the others don't know of her or her previous experience with Jigsaw. Some of them didn't even know who Jigsaw was, so performing a callback gesture for the other's benefit would be unnecessary. This is how we know this moment is genuine. Amanda is deeply, psychologically affected by her first encounter with Jigsaw, as we would expect anyone to be. She was kidnapped, drugged, strapped into a device that could have torn her skull to a pulp, and forced to cut open an innocent man in order to survive. As we see in a flashback during the events of Saw 2, this left Amanda not with a revelationary appreciation of her life, but a trauma so deep and so painful, she relapses into self-harm and attempts to take her own life. This is not uncommon a response for real-life victims of trauma that are unable to access helpful, positive resources to cope with their experiences. It also is perhaps one of the most essential story points in the Saw franchise because it shows us firsthand that Jigsaw's process doesn't work. John selects Amanda as his apprentice and heir because he sees in her proof of his methods and his philosophy. She is the sole survivor of any of his games, and so, he reasons, he has changed her so fundamentally that not only has she seen the error of her ways, but she has seen the method to his madness and will help him save others. But John is projecting, seeing what he wants to see. If Amanda had truly met death and been reborn, as John believes she has, Why would she try to end the life she had just reclaimed? It's because trauma of the horrific kind Jigsaw is forcing on those he deems unworthy of their lives doesn't work that way. His games don't give people their lives back. It destroys them so severely they're left courting death as a means to escape pain. John considers Amanda his greatest success story, but she's actually the perfect example of why his methods don't work. Trauma is the legacy John bestows upon Amanda, not his traps. Wow. I think the parallels between Saul and, you know, a lot of effects of organized religion, Mm -hmm. like, you know, you can't ignore those kinds of conversations when you're reading observations like this. I mean, and you even see her beginning to emulate him in the fact that she chooses to put herself in the middle of this nerve gas trap. And what does John do in the first one? He lays himself down in the middle of the room to control everything. Yeah. She wants to be that judge, jury, and executioner. But we come to find out that, like, her trauma isn't going to let her follow John's philosophy to a T in the ways that he would hope. Mm-hmm. He's a man who wants a lot of control, and she's a woman who is so deeply traumatized that she needs something to latch onto to give her purpose because she loses her sense of self. But she still exercises agency over how she goes about it, which pisses John off. Yeah, it's kind of that thing that's like, he wants an apprentice, but then he doesn't appreciate when she starts to make these decisions of her own. 
And it's easy to kind of, I think, brush that off because as we'll see, Amanda, she starts making some non-conventional decisions Mm -hmm. against the traditional rules of Jigsaw's game. But if you're looking at it in terms of this context and her re-traumatization, we also might think of Jigsaw. What is he getting out of having Amanda as his apprentice? A shit ton of fucking like self-affirmation because he's projecting onto her. Mm-hmm. So like having an apprentice benefits him not only because he's dying, but probably because it strokes his ego to think that he has made this kind of a positive impact on her life. Why would he ever admit that maybe he hasn't? I am already very excited to talk about the third movie because I feel like this conversation is honestly like the perfect segue to that movie. And that's the thing. While we do reach a conclusion with Amanda by the end of the third movie, this series, just when you think that you've seen the last of a character, you don't because of this nonlinear storyline. So we are still learning things about Amanda through four, five, six, seven, about like her impact and how John sees things and how flawed John's philosophies truly are. And like I said, I would love to cover this entire franchise. So if that's something you're interested in, please let us know. Otherwise, we will be continuing September next week. If you want to keep up with us, definitely follow us on Instagram at The Horrors Podcast if you haven't already. And or feel free to email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, we're The Horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.